Eric Smith. So great to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm a massive fan. I've watched you on television for multiple years now and the radio. And I'm a massive fan. So thank you so much for doing this. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So Eric, graduating from Humber uh, Journalism and then going into broadcasting, what's your story and and why did you want to be a broadcaster? Um, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. It's probably like a lot of uh, young, uh, you know, young kids, you know, whether they be, uh, you know, younger uh, boys or girls, you probably, you know, realize at a fairly young age that you're not good enough to be an athlete, <laughs> like a professional athlete. I mean, I like to think I was a, a decent athlete growing up and I played in a number of teams in, in high school and, and at various rep levels and everything else. But I was never going to be making a career of this. Um, and I, you know, I give you a really, really long winded answer and, and, and the, maybe I'll try and cut it between a short answer and a long answer. The, the, the semi long version of the answer Vince is I was lucky enough to know, or at least think I know or knew at a fairly young age that even though I wasn't going to be an athlete, well, what do I want to do? Man, I think I'd like to work in television one day. And television was my, my, my first love, or at least in my, in my mind, what I thought was my first love. So when I say I, I was lucky enough to, to know or think I knew what I wanted to do, I think that's the greatest challenge that young people have. And when I say young people, whether that's 13, 15, 18, whatever the age may be, do you really know what you want to do with the rest of your life? Um, that's the challenge, I think, for a lot of people. They're, they're maybe you know in grade 11, grade 12. Maybe they're already in college or university, and they really don't know what they want to do. And it's kind of like, oh, crap. Uh, I'm in a three-year program, a four-year program. I might be 21, 22 years old and, and getting set to graduate. And I still don't know if I am doing what I want to do. So I was lucky enough that what I thought I wanted to do turned out to be really what I wanted to do. So that's kind of what I mean by the luck of it. Uh, so deciding at a fairly young age that I think I might want to work in television. And I remember thinking, all right, covering sports, how great would that be? Uh, and, and getting a chance to, if I can't play sports, watch sports and talk about sports. Uh, and if it wasn't sports, I actually was thinking, well, maybe a weatherman or something like that. Cause I never wanted to do hard news. Uh, I just, I, I felt that wasn't for me. And, and I mean, kind of like everybody, especially these days, these last eight, nine months, everybody just gets depressed watching the news and covering, covering, unfortunately, you know, uh, world issues and wars and deaths and everything else into that, that wasn't ever going to be for me. Um, so I focused a lot of my high school uh, classes on English and I, I kind of got away from the math. So I was never a great math student, but I got away from the math and sciences. And I, I did a ton of, uh, you know, history, geography, and, and English. Those were primary uh, courses for me and like my OACs and all that to get the grades. And uh, I remember thinking, and again, uh, you know, it's crazy for me to think that it's been this long because I like to think that I'm still a young guy, but I, I, I guess I'm, I'm only getting older. Um, it's been almost 25 years that I've been working full time. So it's been over 25 years since I went to school and at the time, and you could tell me if this mentality still exists. And I think it's absolutely bogus and, and irresponsible. I think that this mentality exists or at least existed. There was this idea that, well, you know, if, if you're really smart, if you got the grades, of course, you're going to university. But if you maybe aren't as smart or maybe you don't have the grades or maybe you just don't really know what you want to do with your life. Well, then, OK, yeah, you go to college. Mm -hmm. And I think that's completely BS. It's totally bogus. I think that there's as much, if not more value in college programs, especially for people that know what they want to do, because you get such a focused um, um, 
attention and, and, and a focused drive towards one specific uh, goal or one specific area, one specific expertise, uh, as opposed to kind of maybe more of the general uh, type training and schooling and educating you get in university, at least for the first couple of years before you really kind of hone in on your major, quote unquote. Um, so in saying all that, and again, I told you I was giving you the, the long-winded answer. Um, I, I, I applied for university. I had the OECs. I had the marks for university. Um, and at the last minute, literally the last minute, the night before the college applications were due, I remember saying to my parents, and I'm a bit of a worry wart from time to time. I said, like, what if I don't get into university? What if my marks aren't good enough? I don't get accepted to my first choice, my second choice, or even my third choice. What if, what if, like, what did it cost? I don't even know what it costs now, but I think it was at the time, like 50 bucks or a hundred bucks or something to, you know, put in your college application as well. So I thought, what the hell, what, you know, what's 50 bucks. I'm going to kind of have that safety blanket of putting in the college application and, and, and knowing that I've got that safety net of having at least that option if the university route doesn't work for me. And as it turns out, when I started going to the university um, open houses and, and visiting certain places, I applied to Ryerson and, and Carleton uh, and Windsor. Those were my three top ones. I'm trying to remember if there was a fourth, but those were my three top ones. Um, and I ultimately ended up getting into all three, uh, initially accepted into two and late admission into another. Um, but then I started going to these information sessions for colleges and I was really liking what I was hearing from these colleges. And I was liking the idea, especially of smaller class sizes. And I'm thinking, all right, it, rather than being maybe in an auditorium or a big lecture hall and smaller classes and, and teachers that aren't necessarily professors, but they're people that are in the industry that are working uh, side jobs and part-time jobs in their spare time and in their free time, but yet they're still producers and reporters and directors and writers at various newspapers and radio station, television stations uh, uh, around the GTA. And I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is pretty good. Like this, this seems like it's maybe the better option for me. And then on top of that, Humber at the time was one of the few colleges and it certainly changed now over 20 plus years, but it was one of the few colleges in the province. And, and I think even in the country that also had a residence. So you could get that sort of university experience still going to a college. So I'm thinking, I'm checking off all these boxes, a chance to move away from home and a chance to experience, you know, life away from home and, 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 and that university, that residence type uh, feel and, and, and setting with a smaller class size, with experts in the field, not necessarily professors that are maybe teaching from a textbook with due respect to, to professors. I'm thinking this is way better for me. And then on top of that, the Humber program specifically had uh, a lot of credit and a lot of notoriety behind it in terms of the journalism program. And the biggest question for me was opting for the journalism program versus the straight uh, uh, television and or TV and radio broadcasting course. And I thought that the, the, the journalism thing would be better for me because, all right, again, playing the what if, what if I don't make it in radio or TV or, or what if uh, maybe I ultimately enjoy writing? Is it better to have the safety net to know that I could write for newspapers or magazines and have that skill set and that training or whatever? And might that help me develop my skills for interviewing, learning how to write in different um, uh, forms and formats and whatever else? And could the, the skills be transferable? And as it turns out, yeah, it was. And even the way that the course was set up at Humber, it was sort of the university type feel, even though it was a three-year program versus your traditional four-year program at university. Um, the, the journalism program at Humber was uh, uh, basically designed that you had to, at some point, whether I can't remember if it was after year one or year two, I should probably know that. I think it was after year two, where you essentially had to pick a, a quote unquote major. So then you would either go the broadcast route and all of your courses would be geared towards radio and television, or you had to pick the print route and all of your courses would be geared towards 
magazine and newspaper writing and everything that goes with it. And so I obviously took the broadcast route and uh, through the program at Humber, they also had uh, an internship program where they guaranteed you placement within your field. Now, you might not get the place you want. You might want to be at, you know, Fan 590 and you get placed at CFRB or you might want to be at Sportsnet and you ultimately end up at Omni Television. Who knows? But they guaranteed placement. And uh, I ultimately did not get into television, which I told you was my first passion and love and, and what I wanted to do. And I remember even at the time taking the uh, the TSN uh, trivia uh, test that they basically were giving to a lot of um, intern applicants. And, and I would have put my sports knowledge up against anybody. And I failed, or at least I didn't pass or not pass well enough to, to what they wanted. And so I got turned down at TSN. And I remember being pretty discouraged about it. One of my uh, radio teachers, uh, Judy Charles, uh, came to me and, and said, you ever thought about radio? I said, I mean, I like radio, but I really want to do TV. And she's like, well, you know, and I, I promise I'm not saying this with any sense of ego or anything. I was just some 21, 22-year-old kid. She's like, well, you've got a decent voice. You've got decent pipes. And, and, and you seem to be pretty good in this course in terms of the writing and whatnot. And like, hey, it's not to say that just because you go do an internship at a radio station that you won't make it into television one day or that you can't still have a passion or a desire and a dream for TV. But let's get your foot in the door. And it's still in sports. Let's see if we can maybe get you into the fan. And, and why don't you go try there? So I went for an interview uh, at the fan, landed the internship, and uh, was very fortunate enough to be hired, uh, like employed, within six months or less. Uh, they converted my internship into a paid position, and in less than a year, I was hired full-time. So it, it was kind of uh, just like uh, right place, right time, and, and, and opportunity was there. And, and in conjunction with me starting my internship and starting my part-time role, uh, right at that time within the world or within the industry, um, headline sports started. And of course, headline sports ultimately became the score, which then, you know, a few years back became Sportsnet 360. But when headline sports started, that is what sort of, I believe, really propelled me or, or, or propelled my career in the sense that um, headline came and started taking sports people from around the industry writers, directors, producers, editors. Uh, you know, on-air reporters and hosts from the fan, from TSN, from Sportsnet, and then they're just grabbing who they can. And I'd say there was probably at least 10 or so people that were pegged and, and pulled from the fan, uh, both on and off air. And that opened up opportunities for jobs that are suddenly vacant. And here's this young kid that's uh, an intern that became a part-timer and Hey man, we got to fill some spots and, and you've kind of proven that you've been pretty good. So we're going to give you a chance. And I get hired, like I said, less than a year out of school as a you know full-time uh, employee at the fan. And it's just sort of been the, the, the slow and or steady climb since then over 20 plus years. What a great story, Eric. Really I know cool. it was really long. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's like, no, it's, I, I didn't want to stop you. It's such a great story. You're talking about kind of the perception of university to college. I think mm -hmm. university is more theory-based and more academia, per se, if that's the right word. But then if you look at the other side of college, college is more practical, and you learn more skills. In, and I went to university, and I'm saying this, I believe, in, you know, because a lot of my friends went to college, and the skills that you learn ultimately will take you into your career. But what I found in university is I didn't understand why I was taking all these different courses, and then fourth right. year I had the option to choose what I wanted to do. Yeah. I never really understand that kind of structure. And I think college is the structure of it. I think it's a better way to set you up for success. 
Yeah, and, and I guess the only thing I would say to that, Vince, and I agree 100% with everything you said, uh, it, it's interesting to me now, and again, I keep referencing, I, I like to think I'm young, but I'm not. I've been, you know, I've seen it now develop over 20 plus years, where how interesting is it now that most universities, if not all universities, have affiliate programs with colleges. So, like I know Humber's got the connection with, with Guelph, uh, where a lot of people now that go to university, to your point, they'll do their, their three, four years, they'll get their degree, but then go, all right, what the hell am I going to do with this now? I need to actually go get some hands-on actual skilled training. I'm going to go do the affiliated program with, you know, blank college on a one-year or, or two-year program. So then, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It means that you're getting a ton of schooling and a, and a ton of um, um, background and versatility. Uh, and, and hell, it's probably a good thing to have six years of school and maybe be coming out a little bit older, a little bit wiser, a little bit more mature at 23, 24 instead of 21, 22. So that's not necessarily a bad thing, especially when we factor in that uh, when I was going to school, we still had grade 13. So, you know, I was older going to university and college than kids these days or young people these days, I shouldn't say kids, that, that don't have that grade 13 now. So you're coming out of grade 12. Man, I don't know if I would have been ready to go to college or university uh, after grade 12 and not have that extra year of grade 13 in, in high school. I think, you know, not to venture too far off topic here, but I think high school should bring back grade 13. I'll tell you, I even said to a buddy recently, I think even now, especially now, given what's happened in the world over the course of this past eight, nine months, and and the lost year that was sort of March to June of 2020, I think that's going to set a lot of people back. You know, a kid that's in grade three or four or five, maybe they recover, even elementary school in general. But if you miss those, those three, four months, which essentially is, you know, for argument's sake, almost half a year, half a school year, and you miss that. I would think as a high school student in grade 9, 10, 11, 12, that set me back. I, I, am I really ready for grade 11 if I missed almost half of grade 10? Am I really ready for grade 12 if I missed half grade 11? Am I really ready for college or university if I missed almost half of grade 12? So maybe it's imperative that the government brings back grade 13 to just kind of give students right now in today's world that little cushion that perhaps they need before transitioning into the next phase in into college or university again that's maybe i know nothing but that's just kind of my my sort of wide-eyed idea that it would be important to bring that back but to kind of bring it back to what you were saying um i think that the only problem and i don't know if it's fair to use that word problem but the potential problem to the the, the college versus university discussion we're having is go back to what i was saying now almost 10 minutes ago about knowing what you want to do, or at least thinking you know what you want to do. If you go to a college program and you well, hopefully see it out, but maybe you're a year in, maybe you're two years in, or maybe, as I just said, you saw it out and you did your full three years, and then you finish and go, oh, this isn't what I want to do. That's all you've done. That's all you've learned. So now are you starting over again with another three-year program, or are you sort of throwing your hands up in the air and what's becoming of my life or whatever? At least in university, if you're throwing your hands up after two, three, four years, you have had a bit more of a diverse training in a lot of different things, not necessarily geared towards just one job, one task, one future. So maybe that enables you to have uh, a wider range of possibilities to either go still out into the workforce with that, with that you know, degree in whatever it may be, um, or to then still have that option to go to college at that point. So there are pros and cons to both. I'm not going to sit here and, 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 and trumpet and say it's only college and you should go to college. I think my whole point is that 
if you know or if you have a pretty good idea of what you want to do, don't discount colleges. And and I think even you and I talking about this right now, it seems pretty clear to me that it probably still does exist, as bogus as it is, that there's still this mentality that, oh, I've got to have a degree versus a diploma. Like, you know, hey, not to sound arrogant about it, my diploma's turned out pretty good for me. I mean, there's people that have better jobs than me, bigger jobs than me, make more money than me, no doubt. And I'm talking within the media. But the diploma versus the degree never held me back from getting an internship or getting a job or or making my way through the industry. So I think maybe it's more of a uh, family thing or maybe it's rooted in, in the way parents are raising their kids. And maybe it's a you know something in the brain where degree, 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 like my parents didn't care, just go to school, be happy and, and hopefully find a job that you love and, and do something with yourself. They never cared that, you know, the, the, the diploma that's hanging on their, uh, on their walls in my old bedroom in my parents' house, all these years later, they don't care that it's a diploma that versus the degree. It says Aerosmith graduated period. That's, that's all they, that's all they, uh, uh, cared about. And I think maybe that's uh, hopefully a mentality that, that changes, uh, as we go forward. I'll get off my little soapbox now on, on, <laughs> you know, universities versus colleges. I agree, Eric, with us to what you're saying. And I think there's so much information now out there in the world where you can learn things and you don't have to go to school for it, such as, you know, I, I came out of university studying sport management, which is the business of sport. And I learned how to like video edit and, and audio edit and all these different skills, right? That, you know, I didn't learn in school, but I looked on the internet, did research and right. I figured out a way to do it. And kind of similar to having this conversation, I am not a broadcaster, obviously. I'm just a person coming out of school and want to talk to industry professionals. And education is really, I think, important in terms of business, in terms of what you do in broadcasting. It's an essential skill. And this experience has allowed me to enhance that communication skills. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, you're, you're right. There's so much now that, again, I, I keep referencing age. And, 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 like, it's so weird for me because... Um, as, as stupid or crazy as it sounds, when I was in college, the internet was basically just starting. Like I remember the first couple of guys in, in the residence that had, oh my God, he has the interweb. You know, we let's let's go let's go surf. And it wasn't even at that that point. It wasn't even Google. It was let's let's go search something. And and you know, like you're you're too young to to know this, but you probably just seen it in movies or heard about it. But you know, like you know, clicking on an image and it's taking a. Zzz, zzz, like frame by frame as it's loading on the page because it's just so slow and and hearing the dial-up connection but my point in saying all that is we really kind of get um get lost or 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 we forget about how fast things have changed in this world and how technology has truly come along like i know people of my generation we joke about uh, the movie back to the future they said oh well, they said by 2020 uh, you know cars will be flying and you know we're not even doing that it's like yeah but literally 20 years ago a little more than 20 years ago we didn't have the internet we didn't have smartphones. The, like what you can do on your phone now, whatever phone platform may be, a- Apple, Android, or otherwise, in terms of everything you just talked about, video editing, audio editing, shooting HD movie quality uh, videos, let alone the, the, the quality of pictures that you can take. And, and suddenly, and that's both pro and con, because it allows you the opportunity, if you're motivated and if you're driven, to do it and do it well and do it properly and to teach yourself. But it also, I think, gives a little bit of a false sense to some people where they think, oh, I can do that, you know. And and to me, that sort of at times, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to soapbox this here, but I think at times in a lot of industries, and especially in media, broadcasting, you know, and when I say media, that could be a lot of things. The technology has sort of given some people, not all, but some, 
the false sense of security, like, well, I can do that, so I can do it as well. Well, I still think that there is a need for proper training uh, and proper professionals. And and I do, um, I don't know that I get offended, but I think I do at times look and say like, okay, well, like I did go to school for this. So I, I, I listen, there are probably some wonder kids out there or, or wonder people out there that are far better than me, but I don't think it would be fair to me to say, well, I take good pictures. I'm as good as that photographer or I'm pretty good at editing videos. So I'm as good as that editor at CBC news and, and that's been doing it for 20 years or, or, you know, I've got a podcast. So, uh, I, I think I can interview people and I, I have a following just like anybody else. And I, I can do what, uh, Peter Mansbridge does or, or what, uh, what Matt Devlin does, or, you know what I mean? I think people get a, a false sense of security because of the access to the technology that they have. Um, and, and sometimes that makes them think that they can just slide right into a certain role, a certain uh, um, job, a certain industry, and, and, and maybe fast track themselves without the proper training or without following the proper channels that, that maybe a lot of people before them have done, if that makes sense. It, it does. Being a little bit of a, a left turn, Eric, but in terms of covering sports on television and radio, is there a massive difference in your preparation process? There's not a difference in the preparation. Um, there's certainly a difference in, in the delivery. Um, obviously, it's it, time's a lot tighter in, in television. You have a little bit more flexibility to talk. Like, you know, right now, you know, even just in this, so you, <laughs> how long-winded have I been? Uh, and, and I know this is technically TV in a sense that we're doing this on video, but, but obviously, you know, it's, it's more of just a conversational type thing. But if this were a, a television show, uh, you'd have a producer and or a director screaming in my ear right now, or probably more so in your ear to shut your guest up because you got to get to commercial and there's no moving the commercials and you've got to get to your sponsors and you got to get that in. And again, that's not to say that there's not sponsors and commercials and radio. I just think you have a little bit more flexibility. Um, and as it relates to live play-by-play though, there's a major difference in, in the two uh, mediums in that, and, and I think you would acknowledge this as a, as a fan, as a viewer or listener, when you're watching a game on television, you don't want to hear your broadcasters as much because you don't need them to describe every single detail of the play because you're watching it. So you want to be entertained. You still want some play-by-play. You still want some analysis. You still want some storytelling. You still want to see the highlights. You still want the energy and the fun that, that hopefully the broadcasters can provide, the, the fun, the entertainment, and the information. But at some point, you also just want them to shut up a little bit so you can watch and not just be drowned out by their voices all the time because you're seeing it. I don't need you to tell me everything. I see it myself. In radio, you're not seeing anything. So you have to describe every detail, and you're trying to paint the picture. So whether it's describing the, the, the expressions on players' faces or the fans and the colors of the uniform and which direction the, 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 the game is moving and, and – and just any little minute detail that you can give. And the color analyst needs to talk less because he needs to be, or she needs to be quick with their points because you got to get it back to the play-by-play guy or the analyst has to incorporate a little bit of play-by-play into their analysis in order to make sure that the audience still knows uh, where the ball is, where the puck is, what's happening, where they are in the field, on the court, whatever. Because if I'm not telling you, then you have no idea. You're driving around going, who's got the ball right now? Who's on offense? Who's on defense? Who, who's handling? Who just scored? What's the score? That's another thing. What's the score? You can't say the time and the score enough. 
if you tune in to the second quarter of a broadcast on the radio, you should know what the score is within, I'd say, 30 seconds or less, less but definitely 60 seconds or less. Because otherwise, you're going, who, who's winning? That's why you tuned in. You want to know who's winning. You want to know what's happening in the game. Where are we? Is it first quarter, second quarter? How much is left in the first half? Are we in the second half? You know, you need to know those things. So time and score, whereas in TV, it's on the screen. I don't need to say it. It's right there for you. So there, there's a lot of differences in the delivery, but preparation-wise, no, you still have to know, you know, you know, you know your stats, know your trends, know who's hurt, who's not hurt, know, know stories and background. And, and, and when we say color, the, the colorful stories that come with, you know, having at least one, if not seven tidbits about each guy in case there's any, uh, you know, uh, time to, 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 to give a little bit more background to a player uh, or to a situation, to a story that's been unfolding and whatnot. Uh, you got to be prepared. I'll tell you, and and you've probably heard this before. Um, you know, we can argue whether it's ninety-five percent, ninety percent, eighty percent. Let's just say ninety. You probably end up not using ninety percent of the information or the research that you've you've put into a broadcast, and you might only get to about ten percent of it. But you have to have the other ninety for the what if. What if you know? Uh, a player gets injured and there's 10 minutes you got to fill. What if there's, uh, you know, something that happens within the game? What if your broadcast partner falls ill and has to leave the broadcast? What if, what if, what if? You've got to be prepared for all those and, and know that you're, you are you have uh, as much information uh, and as much knowledge to bring to every single broadcast. So so you have to prepare uh, for everything, again, no matter what you're doing, TV, radio, or otherwise. I thought Bob Cole, Eric, was the master of – sharing just the the best information in terms of calling a game because he didn't give you too much information but he didn't give you too little and every time there was a special play let's say he, there was always kind of a, a pause that he would take and he would just let you watch it so that's why i'm such a big fan of bob cole yeah i i would agree with that you know it's it, we often will call it letting it breathe you know let it breathe a little bit uh, you know sometimes the the best moment is simply uh, allowing the fans, the crowd, to take the moment and to have that energy. Um, and, and that carries through on radio. Uh, I think it carries through even more so on television because you not only hear it, but then you can see it. They show you the images, flash to this fan, flash there, boom, 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 all the different camera angles, facial expressions from, from players, from, from, uh, from coaches, from you know, anybody in, in the stands. So those moments, again, are where the pictures, the video, can carry the moment. I think in radio, you have to describe it a little more, again, to paint the picture for people. But at the same time, big moments, you still do want to kind of let the crowd and, and let those microphones pick up the roar of the crowd and whatnot uh, and, and, and allow people to, 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 to use that to paint that picture for themselves as well instead of just relying on you to say every single thing. And honestly, I don't know if you can be taught that, it, you just sort of have to feel it in the moment. Um, and, and that might, might sound kind of cheeseball, but it's, I think it's true that just the, the more you do it, you know, even within a talk show and within a conversation, um, Bob McCallum to me uh, was and, and arguably still is the best in terms of, you know, my, and, and, and it's honestly it comes down to preference and, and, and personal taste, I suppose. Like I know my wife, I don't know if Bob will watch this or ever this ever gets back to Bob, but my wife used to hate listening, not to Bob, but just those moments within his show where he literally would take three to five second pauses, like the pregnant pause. And she would say, man, I, I, thought, the, I thought 
I lost the signal or something. I thought the like I had to change channels. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he started talking it. And I love it because I think it's also um it's time for your brain to reset sometimes. Like as much as we're trained or, or, or we've been schooled or we like to think that we're we just we have to talk all the time, there is something to be said for maybe sometimes you need to take that moment to gather your thoughts. Or maybe you're doing it intentionally to to really hammer home a point that you just made before you begin your next sentence or begin your next point. Or maybe it's, it's again, just the, the, the delivery of slowing your cadence down um, to really hammer something home or, 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 or to just create the drama of the moment, again, whether it's in a play-by-play moment or even just in a conversation, in an interview. And I think Bob was, was one of the best at that. So um, like even within this conversation, we're currently talking about play-by-play and preparation for broadcast, but um, there's a major difference between preparing for a broadcast and a live play-by-play versus preparing for a live radio show or even a recorded show uh, interview because the skills that you bring to that and the style that you bring to that is different. There's, there's a, a major difference between trying to have a, a, a conversational laid-back interview versus certainly a hard-hitting news interview versus live play-by-play. Um, because the other thing, too, is especially when you're live in any format. And, and this, to me, is, is it might be we're recording it, but we're doing it sort of live to tape. Unless one of us really screws up, this is going to air the way it airs when we're having the conversation. Um, I, I, I think that the reason I bring up the, the difference in, in, in live is that this is all ad lib. This is, there's no scripts here. There's no, there's, there, you know, it's, it's all improv. It's all what's coming off the top of my head, off the top of your head. Um, and that's certainly the case in live play by play. Cause you obviously can't predict what's going to happen within a game. So even as much as you prepare your stories and you prepare your stats and you prepare for the broadcast, once that ball goes up, that pucks drop or whatever sport we're talking about, you have no idea what's coming and you're just describing the play. And you might not even look down at your stats and stories at all because your job is to watch and to talk about it and to deliver. And, and you just have to be ready to, to think on your toes. Uh, and, and as I say, use those improv uh, skills uh, and, and just kind of, uh, you know, be in the moment. And, and that's something that, to your point about doing this podcast and this show with different people from all walks of life is, it ultimately comes down to just conversational skills and interpersonal skills and, and being able to, to talk and to carry a conversation and to hopefully be engaging or interesting or, or at least look engaged and interested when you're talking to somebody as well. And, and I think that then helps in life skills in general, just to have conversations at a party with family that, you know, if, you, if you're maybe quiet and reserved and maybe it helps bring you out of your shell a little bit or, or helps you talk to that, that guy or that girl at the bar or, or that helps you in a, in a job interview that you're going for, or even just, you know, you know, walking in the grocery store and being a little bit more personable, not being grouchy and looking people in the eye. I'm on my kid about that all the time. Eye contact, eye contact, eye contact. I want to see your eyes because then I know you're listening and you're paying attention. And so I, I just think that, uh, you know, that it's good on you that you do something like this. Cause I think no matter what your background is, sport management communications, otherwise, I think just the skill of talking to people and having, conversations and communication in general, I think is, is something that we all need no matter what job we're doing. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. I completely agree. Uh, Before we talk about the Raptors, Eric, I want to ask you, were you always interested in in multi-sport because you cover boxing, tennis, basketball, uh, your columnists as well. Were you always interested in multiple sports? I was, um, and I still am. Uh, 
when I when I grew up, I was kind of a weird Canadian uh, in the sense that I was born and raised in Canada. But uh, baseball was probably my number one sport, uh, and basketball was was a close a close second. But that said, I was a massive I mean massive Wayne Gretzky fan. Yeah, from everything from the pillowcases to the drapes, like like Wayne Gretzky, my room was Gretzky, Gretzky, Gretzky. And part of that was not only was he, you know, the best player at the time, and to me, to this day, is still the best player of all time. Um, but my neighbors four doors up uh, were Gretzky's aunt and uncle and cousins, like uh, you know, uh, the 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 McLeans, uh, Marvin and Sandy. That Sandy's sister was Phyllis Gretzky, Wayne's mom. So it was like we're not talking like distant cousins; we're talking like first cousins, aunt and uncle, like you know, mom of, uh, uh, or, or sorry, aunt is 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 mom's sister. So I actually had a chance at a young age to meet Wayne a couple of times when he came to visit his aunt and uncle and his cousins. And, and, and uh, so I, I, I had a chance to, to meet him a couple of times, played road hockey with him, uh, went to the house in Brantford. I've seen like the, now granted again, this was the early to mid eighties. So it's, it's only bigger and, and better and, and more impressive since, but I saw like the, the shrine, the museum in the basement of all the trophies and everything in, in the uh, house in Brantford, the, the Gretzky family home. Um, so I was a huge Gretzky fan. And, and the reason I mentioned that is I played road hockey damn near every day of my life. I'm talking in the summertime, like road hockey constantly, but I was always out whether I'm playing road hockey, whether I'm playing tennis, whether I'm playing wall ball, whether I'm shooting hoops, whether I'm playing in a pickup game, whether I'm out on the baseball diamonds, you know, playing in a ton of leagues and playing rep ball. And I played four years of high school baseball for my high school team and, and played in front of some scouts and whatnot as well. But again, never, never good enough. They were, they were looking at other people, not me. Um, I, I, I love sports in general and love watching and playing a lot of sports, but my true passion always seemed to lie. And as much as I love Gretzky and, and road hockey and everything, never played hockey. I was baseball and basketball. Those were my sports. And then I got into tennis a little bit more and played one year on the tennis team in high school too. And I just liked, again, watching and, 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 and following a lot of different sports. And when I got to college, as I talked about sort of the, the right place, right time, well, the thing I left out, right place, right time, was I'm coming out of college one year after the Toronto Raptors come into existence. So here's this kid that loves basketball, that follows basketball, that you know loves basketball and follows basketball more so than hockey. And at a time where uh, it might not seem like it now, Vince, but I can tell you from, from living it and, and experiencing it, there weren't a ton of Raptor fans or a, lot, a ton of basketball fans. And those that were, were because they'd been following for, for years, for decades. So they were fans of the Bulls, of the, of the Celtics, of the Lakers, of the 76ers, the teams that you grew up watching in the you know, 70s, 80s, early 90s, before the Raptors even came into existence. So there weren't a ton of people that either knew basketball or even cared about basketball. So for me, as a young kid that knew the game, loved the game, covered the men's team at Humber for a couple of years and had some basketball training to some extent in that sense, um, I was on the bosses right away. Let me, let me go cover the Raptors. Can I go down to a practice? Can I go down and cover a game? Can I, can I do anything? I'll pull tape. I'll cut tape. I'll, I'll job shot, whatever it may be. And the two original Raptor reporters at the fan were George Strombolopoulos and Elliot Friedman. And uh, George ended up leaving, uh, and he was a board op at the time, too. Like, he was a, just an engineer, but he was doing kind of stuff on the side part-time. This is the other thing about this industry is, even to this day, I've got a pretty cool job, and I, and I love and respect and appreciate the, the opportunity I have and the job I have. But I still do, like, seven other jobs with it. You know, it's like, oh, 
play-by-play and sideline and hosting and writing because it's just the way the industry is. You're always wearing a lot of hats. So even George back in the day was hustling, but he ultimately left for a job at, uh, I think he went to CFNY first before then going to much music and then to CBC and whatnot. But he left. And then Elliot Friedman was one of those guys that left to go to headline sports, which became a score. So the Raptors starting as I'm coming out of school, as I'm getting an internship, as headline sports starts, it's like all of these things happening at once uh, afforded me the opportunity. I'm very lucky, very fortunate to be, had I graduated five years earlier, five years later, who knows where I'm right now? Because maybe it was just the opportunity of not a ton of people knowing or caring a lot about basketball at the time, uh, you know, enabled or, or afforded me the chance to have a boss to say, yeah, sure, whatever. Go ahead, go, go, go job shadow, go cover. Yeah, if you want to work, you know, 20 extra hours in a day, you go right ahead, go do your thing. Uh, you know, we could use the bodies, but we're not paying you for it. Or yeah, sure, whatever, go, go cover that Raptor team. You know, there were a lot of people that thinking Toronto's not going to fly as a basketball city. The Raptors aren't going to last. And especially when the, the Grizzlies ended up bowing out, you know, less than three quarters of a decade and all oh, the Raptors aren't going to last. This is a fringe sport. It's not going to happen. And, and I, you know, myself, Paul Jones, we kept fighting that and fighting that and fighting that. Um, so anyways, again, very long winded way of saying to you, uh, I, I have always watched and followed and cared about a lot of sports, but basketball created the opportunity for me very early in my career. And I was able to latch onto that and thus able to, to grow within that sport with that team and within the broadcast world as a result of that. But then as the years have gone by and the experience um, um, has, has, has hopefully spoken for itself. And again, I don't say that arrogantly. Hopefully my, my, my work has spoken for itself. That has afforded me the opportunity within the industry to have some bosses approach me and say, Hey, you know, ever considered, uh, uh, you know, doing something else? Like, could we, could we tap on your shoulder to do some tennis matches in the summertime? Sure. Yeah. I'd love to do that. I know, I know tennis. Like, yeah, let's, let's try it. And one year becomes two becomes three becomes four. And, and, you know, here you are the boxing thing. I'll tell you though, was, was, I've only done the boxing the one time and I would, I would love to do it again, but the boxing had the 2012 Olympics. That was again, and this is kind of the way the industry is to some degree. And I, I, you could probably say this about a lot of industries, right place, right time. Uh, unfortunately, Jeff Merrick had uh, some sort of issue pop up in his family and it's something personal, uh, you know, not my place to say, but he had a, a family issue arise less than a week before the Olympics started. And he was supposed to be calling men's boxing for the, uh, uh, you know, for Sportsnet, for the, for the broadcast consortium, because uh, that was the year where Sportsnet, TSN, and, and I think it was CBC, all three of them sort of combined uh, resources and, and kind of became friends for a few weeks and, and, and broadcasted together. Um, but Merrick was supposed to be calling boxing. And six days before the Olympics started, I was in the backyard at my house. And, you know, we're talking, I guess that was late June, early July. Uh, I can't remember the start date of the Olympics that year, but it was literally, I know it was six days. It was less than a week. My phone rang and it was uh, Rob Corte, one of the bosses at Sportsnet. I'm like, why is Rob Corte calling me in the middle of the summer? Like, this is my off season. So when the boss is calling in the off season, uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is good news. I'm like, kind of hello. <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, Hey, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And then it was, um, you know, what do you, what do you know about boxing? Well, when the boss asks you a question, you, you know, you don't, you rarely will say, you know, I don't know anything or, you know, even if you have to, to, to kind of fudge and, and lie, you right Oh, I know everything. Yeah, of course I know boxing, you know, because something's got to be coming. And I, I said, well, I mean, I, 
and I was honest in the sense, I'm like, well, listen, I'm not a, an expert by any means, but I mean, I, 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 I watch boxing. I tune into the big matches. I've watched it since I was a kid. I, I mean, I've never boxed, but I mean, I, I like to think I know a little bit about it, but I mean, I, I don't know why are you asking. Well, what do you think about calling boxing for the Olympics? <laughs> like, like the Olympics, like these Olympics and six days Olympics. And he said, yeah, there's, you know, Jeff, Jeff, you know, had to bow out last minute, really didn't want to, but uh, circumstances are what they are and, and he's not able to do it. Uh, we need a favor. We need you to step up. And I thought, holy blank, like, okay. Yeah. Um, so I got a binder about like this thick and it was crammed because I wasn't just doing one weight class. I did all weight classes for the men's boxing. Uh, there was somebody else calling the women's boxing, but I did every weight class for the men. So by, by like day two, I had already called like 17 matches because <laughs> Cause there was just like one after the other, after the other. Um, and it's only three rounds in the Olympics and, and whatever, but I also had the luxury and the benefit of having Russ Amber as my analyst. And Russ is like the best, like just wind him up and watch him go. I, I mean, I, I felt like at times I was just saying, you know, like uh, whatever, like, you know, you know, Joe Smith from the U S versus, you know, John Jones, well, John Jones exists, but John Jones from Canada, uh, Smith in the blue shorts and Jones in the red shorts and the, you know, the bell goes round one and Russ, blah, 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 blah. and I would just uppercut, blah, 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 blah. you know, solid, solid block, whatever. I'm just like ad living here. And then Russ, blah, 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 blah. bell goes, Oh, it's the end of the first round. Russ, blah, 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 blah. like, I swear. I felt like I was just saying like name colors start end of round, you know, like, cause Russ was just talking so much and giving you everything. Cause he just, knew so much that and and again it wasn't that simplistic but it felt that way sometimes that he made my job so easy and that's ultimately the good sign or great sign of a good broadcaster as well is whether we're talking play-by-play or color analyst or even within a talk show um you're only as good sometimes as your partner a good play-by-play guy should be setting up his analyst to have that platform to to be the star and to tell the stories like that's why they're there. You're the former player. You're the former coach. You're the former executive. You're the guy that's the, the trainer, whatever it may be. You've got the, the knowledge, the experience, the background, the stories use it. But at the same time, the analyst shouldn't be talking over the play-by-play guy all the time because the play-by-play guy still has a role to do and a job to do. So it needs to be the synergy of a team. But even as I said, within the parameters of a talk show, whether it's your co-host on your show, if you have one, you need to play off one another. You can't be just totally talking over your coast all the time. You need to, there needs to be that that give and take. But even if it's just a single host, why do you have a guest on? You have a guest on to tap into their stories and their expertise and what they have to bring. So you allow your guest to be the star. Yeah, people tune in to watch Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, and they need to be funny. But their moment is in the monologue or their moment is in the bits. When you have somebody on, it's not to say that you don't talk and you don't have a conversation because to me, again, the best interviews are the conversations where you are providing um, your opinion and you are jumping in and you are providing, again, that give and take. But at the end of the day, you know that now it's your job to step back into the shadows and allow the person who you've invited on to your show to have their moment because that's why you asked them to come on. And I'm not saying that about me right now. I'm talking about in, in just in general. Um, those to me are the best broadcast when when you're allowing people to shine and you're playing off one another and it becomes more casual and it's not rigid. And I, again, I would say that's something that you want to transfer into life in general. 
a give and take within a marriage, within a relationship, within a conversation, within a job interview, within a, uh, a chat uh, over a couple of beers at a party with maybe even somebody you just met. It needs to be kind of the, the, the give and take. I think we got way off topic on there. Yes, I like lots of sports. Lots of sports. <laughs> That's great, Eric. It's fascinating how you say that, Eric, because one of the things that I know, especially early on in doing these recordings and speaking with industry professionals, is that I, I didn't like interruption because I feel like if I'm interrupting, then I'm not really listening to the point or I'm not really listening to the story. Mm-hmm. So You're very too busy trying on. to get your point in. Right. So I, I, I picked that up I, like a couple episodes in and, and that's why I just like, I like listening to the full answer. Like talk to uh, Joel Darling, who's the exact producer with yep. Rogers. And we're talking with him about clips. And I, I spoke with Paul Henrik about like clips. And um, the one thing about clips is you don't really hear about the full extent, right? And to such as this, if you watch, you know, 30 minutes or 35 minutes rather than watching something two minutes, I think the meeting sometimes is different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's where... I, I'll admit to you, if we were live on a radio show right now or live on a television show, mm-hmm. I would be even conscious. And maybe it's because I've been in the industry or whatever, but I would be conscious of knowing I can't give you a nine minute answer like I have on a couple of occasions in this conversation. Like, I don't know if you were trying to keep this to 20 minutes or 30 minutes and we've already oh. done, I think, 45. Um, <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> but but uh, I, I think in these type of forms and settings, I, I feel the ability to maybe uh, speak a little bit longer. And, and I'm also, I, I know that I'm guilty and trust me, my wife would tell you, I tend to drag on a lot. <laughs> so maybe I need to be reeled in a little bit, but I think that within a certain show, I would know there are time restrictions. You need to keep it tight. And I think even athletes and coaches, and there's the pro and con of this as well. Athletes and coaches, I think have been trained to speak in, in sound bites at times where that becomes frustrating then as a reporter, as a broadcaster, as a host, as an interviewer, whatever you know role you want to say, because maybe you're trying to get more out of the player. You're trying to get a better answer or a longer answer or something that's just not a stock answer or cliche or whatever. And it's often difficult to pull that out because is that they've been trained? Because I can tell you flat out, these guys actually do go to media training sessions. And there are people that do this, that go in and visit with teams and tell them, this is how you answer X, Y, Z. And this is how you can answer without really answering, without really like this is a job and this is this exists. Um, but is it because they've been trained that way, or is it because they don't trust you, or is it because they don't want to put their foot in their mouths, or is it because they're just shy? Uh, or then do you get the guy that gives you a longer answer, a more passionate answer, a more honest answer? But then you've got, and I don't mean to use Joel as the as the bad guy here, but then you've got a a, a boss that's going way too long that needs to be cut down like well no it's like that 60 second answer was incredible needs to be 30 we only have time for 30 seconds well what am i going to cut out like i can't well we got to cut it we only have 60 seconds so that's where you run into even when guys give good answers or longer answers do you have the time for it or um whomever edited it did they edit the right portion that you wanted as the interviewer and then we speak about then the team concept and the, definitely the team mentality that that needs to exist within, again, within my world, at least within broadcasting, where it's not just as simple as the, the viewer at home or the listener at home seeing or hearing the final product. Nine times out of 10, there was a reporter, let alone the interview subject, 
And then there was a producer and maybe an associate producer and an editor and a director and a sound guy. There, there might be anywhere from two to three to seven people working on one thing. And they all need to be working collaboratively and, and know that, um, you know, the, 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 the vision of what I thought this would look like in my mind is the same as your vision and doesn't come out completely different, let alone the intent of what was said by whomever, player, coach, whatever. Does it ultimately transfer out into the final product because did it get chopped down and edited to your point where maybe you lost the context or the tone of which something was said? And that's why I, I, I've always felt too, when I read something to kind of, again, veer off this topic just a little bit, when I read something in a newspaper or a magazine, if it's something that's quasi-inflammatory or edgy, I take it with a grain of salt to some degree. And that's not to imply that the writer isn't accurate in his or her reporting. And, and did, didn't properly quote his or her subject or, or, or interview subject. But I would love, if it exists, if it's possible, I would love to be able to see the clip or at the very least hear the clip because then I can see the body language, the facial expressions, and or hear the tone in which the words were said as well. Because I could, I, could I could say something to you right now that just by my facial expression, you would be able to tell that I was joking or that I was serious or that maybe I was shifty and nervous. Uh, or even if we shut the cameras off, maybe you could tell by the way my voice quivers or rises or lowers or, or whatever it may be, you might pick up on a hint. But if it's just in black and white and in, in the written word, maybe it looks completely innocuous. Maybe it looks completely innocent or maybe it looks very inflammatory and it wasn't meant to be that way. So that's where, again, the, 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 just the, 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 the ability to have that one vision um, and, and to, to kind of be working towards that one goal and accurately uh, depicting things, telling things, uh, reporting things, I think is, is paramount to, to, to everything. That's what I found so fascinating about uh, Twitter, Eric. And that's a totally different conversation. But with t- Twitter, because it's written, and when you when, when you read it, it might be different than in a video where if you look at it, like you said, it's a bit different. Uh, well, I'll tell you just quickly, and I, I promise I'll be quick on this one, is one of the things I know I've, I've uh, found myself guilty of, of getting into a bad habit of for at least a decade now, and I just did it to you 10 seconds ago. I find that because of the type of world we live in now, and again, pulling up my soapbox, I think that we've become, as a society, sensitive both pro and con. We need to be more aware of issues. We need to be more aware of people's feelings. We need to be more aware. Again, the list goes on. Whether we're talking about mental health, whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about sexism, whether we're talking just political issues, whatever it is. Again, it's a long, 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 long list. We need to be more aware of things. We need to be more sensitive of things. We need to realize that things are not only, oh, they're different now. No, they've been different. We just maybe have been too too ignorant uh, or too lazy or too selfish to acknowledge or understand or appreciate that all of this stuff has existed and we need to be more aware of it. I will say, but I think that there are some things as well within society that we've become maybe too sensitive to. So we become, you know, like, I don't want to offend you, but, or I don't, what I, I don't mean to imply that, but, so I find that because of social media, to your point, the written word, tone and, and, and context can be lost 
and people immediately are just waiting to be triggered, waiting to be offended. So now it's almost like you have to use up your, you know, 40 of your 140 or 160, whatever the hell it is, characters to say, I don't want to uh, be rude, but, or I don't mean to offend anyone, however, or please understand where I'm coming from when I say that, because if you don't give that context, you know that people are just, I shouldn't say people, some people or many people, depending on how you look at it, are waiting to be offended, waiting to be triggered. And uh, I think that has created um, the, the angst and animosity that, that can often uh, exist within the social media world. And then there are just people in general that forget issues and forget opinions and forget everything I just said. They're just people that are looking to be jerks and looking to just be antagonistic. And and that 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 feel that, you know, they have the right to be rude to you or to push back at you and to try and push your buttons. And they're trying to. Then there's also the other side of it where there might be somebody like in my position where I attempt to respond to almost everybody. I don't I don't respond to everybody every single day. It becomes difficult, but I try to respond to as many people as possible. It might take me longer sometimes than others, but then you really kind of have to get to the point where you're saying, is this really worth my time? Like, even if, if somebody's been, I don't want to just respond to the positive responses. I want to be balanced and fair and be open to criticism or open to, to other opinions or open to people that maybe just don't like me or didn't like my work or whatever it may be. I can't just always be lovey-dovey and only take the compliments and never take any any criticism or, or feedback that might be construed as negative. But at the same time, is it being delivered uh, responsibly, maturely, um, um, uh, properly? Uh, is the criticism being delivered in a nice way or are you just looking to be an a-hole uh, and, and looking to try and get into some sort of Twitter spat or social media war or, or comment with negativity on, on pictures or videos on, on Instagram and, and whatever, you know, it's just, it's, it's, again, I'll sound like the old man here. It's a tough time to be growing up to be a young person because uh, it's certainly difficult for old people like me as well. Uh, but to be young right now and to know that at 10, at 15, at 20, whatever it may be, that what you say let alone what you post or what you comment, uh, definitely does, not just in a cliche way, it does live with you and can live forever. And you're just a screen grab away from saying one dumb thing or doing one dumb thing. And that could potentially derail your entire life, literally, your career, your personal life, and everything else. Man, I didn't have that when I was growing up. And it's it's got to be difficult to be a kid right now. And I think that that's where uh, maybe it just comes down to and I don't want to sound too like, you know, lovey dovey here, but it just comes down to being a decent person. And, and, and hopefully, and listen, I'm not, I'm not perfect by any means. I, I have my, I have my bad days. I have many bad days, many bad days. And, and I'm not always the nicest guy in the world, but you know, trying to be nicer more than, more than not, and, and trying to be decent more than not, and trying to be good more than not. And, and again, I fail at that many times, but uh, I think there just are more people that fail more than me. I guess if that's the way of saying it, I, I just uh, I think that uh, it's, it's a tough time. It's a tough time to be, to be dealing with, uh, you know, again, going back to the technology, the pros and cons of technology and the pros and cons of the access to uh, people and to information and to people's lives and, and whatever and what we choose to share or not share and how we choose to interact with folks, all of that stuff. It's, it's uh, mind, mind boggling and mind blowing sometimes. So you cover the, the Raptors um, very well. And I want to ask, you know, what are your predictions in terms of roster moves from the front office? Um, yeah. I mean, obviously I think it goes without saying I have no idea. So this is just more my, my gut, my mm-hmm. opinion um, and, and what I would do. 
Uh, I think that, uh, you know, if you kind of look short and long term, the Raptors were in a position just a couple of years ago to have three very good point guards in Kyle Lowry, Fred Van Vliet, and DeLon Wright. Uh, and, and we were talking a lot about the potential future of the one-two punch of maybe Fred Van Vliet and DeLon Wright maybe being together. And if Kyle Lowry were to ever retire or move on, you know, you think you've got to, um, you know, you hand the keys to the organization over to one or both of those guys. But then as the, the years kind of unfold over the last couple years there wasn't room for both there needed more wiggle and flexibility to the roster and, and delon wright uh, ultimately moved on and now is, is playing in dallas so now you've got fred van vliet and kyle lowry well kyle lowry's a free agent at the end of this year and i'm i am i have been on the record many times saying that if kyle lowry wants to come back he can come back if he wants to retire as a raptor i believe he's earned that right as the greatest raptor of all time kyle lowry uh basically has free reign to do what he chooses so if he wants to come back he's back if he wants to move on he moves on either via trade or via free agency i will never say trade kyle lowry he has earned the right to decide what he wants to do uh whether it's staying or going but in saying all that you have to at least be aware of or or be prepared for the possibility of maybe not having him at some point in the next year or so well to that extent then I think it's imperative that you re-sign Fred Van Vliet. You have to, because I think he's the point guard of the future for you, and he's the guy that takes this team uh, into the next generation, in a sense. So I think you have to keep Fred. It's just a matter of will you have the ability to do so, because he has definitely earned uh, the the right to have a major payday, and he's going to earn minimum, minimum $20 million a year, probably closer to twenty-five. And will the Raptors be able to pay that? Uh, it's going to be close. I think they can. But the key for them is, can they give Fred the money he wants while still uh, uh, keeping the financial flexibility that the Raptors and every team in the league wants for next offseason when Giannis Antetokounmpo, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Rudy Gobert, uh, Andre Drummond, Victor Oladipo, Mike Conley, uh, the list goes on, DeMar DeRozan, all these guys are free agents. The the summer of 2021 or the offseason of 2021, is bananas uh, with Giannis being at the top of the list. And of course you've heard all the rumblings about the possibility maybe of the Raptors being in those sweepstakes. I don't know if that's legit or otherwise, but listen, the Raptors will be interested if Giannis is interested uh, as will the other 29 teams in the league outside of Milwaukee be interested. So you have to be conscious of uh, the contract for Fred um, not going over the number that would take you out of being in those conversations with any number of these marquee free agents next year. But then, yeah, but if you don't bring back Fred, you might not have a point guard next year if Kyle Lowry decides to walk and Fred's already gone and you don't have DeLon. He's been gone for a couple of years. So it's it's a very interesting time. And if I had to rank the three primary guys for the Raptors, there are others, but the three top guys being Fred, uh, Serge Ibaka, and Marcus Gasol, um, I would put you know Ibaka second and Gasol third, and that's not meant as a knock to Mark. I think it's more just a, an age thing. But I do think you need to be concerned about the fact that um, how thin is your front court if you don't have at least one of those guys back? Because right now, there aren't a lot of bigs. Whether we're talking power forwards or centers, there's not a lot of length or size or strength or or depth in the Raptors' front court right now um, if you lose both of Abaka and Gasol. Uh, So that will be something that will then absolutely need to be addressed in free agency uh, and or via trade with other guys if both of those guys ultimately don't resign. And I don't think you'd have the money uh, or the flexibility financially to bring back all three. So it's probably going to come down to 
picking and choosing. And then the other thing is to take it one step further. When I talk about that wiggle room and that financial flexibility, when if your top two guys are Abaka and Fred, well, do you have the money to be able to do that and the flexibility to be able to do that? Or might it be we can only pick one of our two top guys, but then maybe get our third guy on a shorter deal, a smaller deal, a lesser deal that that allows us still to have that flexibility and that freedom. So then maybe it becomes Fred and Mark and not Fred and Serge or whatever. I, I don't know. Again, I'm just kind of spitballing and speculating. Uh, but I think, again, to, to kind of hammer home the point, the, 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 the top importance to me is Fred Van Vliet. I, I, I think, uh, you know, you, you, you want him back and, and hopefully he, you know, listen, I know he likes the city and he likes the organization, but, you know, he's made no bones about the fact and, and even in just recent days, he's looking to get paid and rightfully so. He's earned that right. You know, so he, he should get paid. I agree, Eric. I think this is maybe the management side of me. I really hope Masai resigns. I, I just, I, I like everything about him. Everything as a leader, I, I like everything as a, as a manager. I like, I just think he's a class act and the Raptors are obviously very fortunate to have him. And I hope, I hope they can work things out and come to an agreement where he resigns long-term because I, I'm such a massive fan. And I think most of the city are a massive fan as well. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I mean, that's the other potential free agent we didn't even talk about right i mean it's it's messiah and his contract expiring and and listen i think uh much like i said about fred i would certainly say the same thing about messiah he's earned that right uh to to you know he probably even sets the sets the figure you know what he's done for the organization let alone for the city and arguably for the province and country and 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 what he stands for uh as a person let alone as a basketball executive um I think, uh, you know, the sky's the limit for him. I, I, I get without knowing this personally, um, maybe he has other uh, aspirations or goals within basketball, but you've won a championship. So is, is it then just to win a championship somewhere else and to prove that you can take another team and build them up again? Or is it, do you have drive and motivation outside of basketball for as active as he's been with his own charitable ventures and with his own organization uh, with Giants of Africa, you know, is, is your dream outside of the NBA? Is it outside of the Toronto Raptors? Is it politically driven? Do you have goals or aspirations to be a politician one day, to, 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 to work for a government, to, to I don't know what. It, it, we, we, not, neither one of us know, know that answer. And, and Masai is a, is, is a very nice man and certainly a well-respected man, but I think he's a fairly private man as well. And, and, and um, he has chosen to, and it's more than his right to uh, not talk about stuff like this right now and to just kind of let the process play out. And he's, he has said like, he's not thinking about the contract. I, I, I got to imagine he has thought about it. Um, but he says it's, it's, you know, he's here to run the Toronto Raptors and until uh, he's not, then that's what he's going to do. And I hope just like you, that he's around doing it for a long time. I really do. Awesome. I have one more question for you, Eric, because you, You've traveled, you've, you've been in the industry for a long time. What would you say the most memorable moment in your career so far in, in broadcasting or even as a fan? Yeah. A special moment. Um, it's Honestly, Vince, it's, it's tough to give you just one because I've been fortunate enough and lucky enough to have many. Um, but I, So I'll, I'll try and cut it down to just two. And one, I think, is obvious. And that is the Raptors winning the championship. And to know that, selfishly speaking, even, I had a chance to be a part of history. Um, 
you know, I, I was calling the game on the radio. So as much as it would have been amazing to be a part of the television broadcast and to do the post-game interview and to be on the floor, you know, with the ticker tape falling on me and all the confetti coming down and interviewing players in the moment, whatever, that would have been incredible. Trust me, it was just as amazing to be calling the game on the radio and to know that, uh, you know, when you listen back to the Raptors winning the championship, whether it's their only championship or whether it's their first championship of three, five, ten, whatever it may be one day, my voice, my call will be part of history. So that's a thrill for me as a, as a fan, let alone as a broadcaster, to know that I own that little piece of history. Um, it, it, it's kind of just cool to think of it still and to know that even in that moment, like because I call the games for the team and we're, you know, we're team broadcasters, we're considered part of the, the, the travel party, the team, um, you know, the, 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 the group of people. And, and the reason I say that is we were very fortunate to be invited into uh, the locker room about 90 minutes after the, uh, the game and after the, the kind of champagne shower has sort of, well, maybe not ended, but quieted down. And, you know, I had my picture taken with the trophy, like less than two hours after the championship. And my, you know, suit is soaked in champagne and I fulfilled my work commitments and everything. But there I am holding the trophy and posing for the, uh, you know, pictures by myself and then with Jonesy and then with other members of our broadcast crew. And then Kyle Lowry jumps into a picture and all that. And, and, and then even months later, um, I had an opportunity to have the trophy for a day and to be able to show it to friends and family and to have it in my home and whatnot. So it was, it's very, very, very cool to, to to know that, you know, even if I were to die tomorrow and knock on wood, hopefully I don't, but uh, to that I had that moment in my life, let alone in my career. But the other one, crazy as it may be, uh, even though I've had a career in sports and I told you I never wanted to cover news, um, the attacks on the Twin Towers uh, on September 11th, I was uh, at that time in my life and in my career hosting the evening talk show on fan 590 myself and bill hayes we were on monday to friday 7 to 11 and uh so i was on the air uh on september 11th the the day of the attacks and uh, i sat at home and watched everything unfold over the course of the day um and and then knew that i had to go on the air live that evening and it was um difficult to say the least let alone uh, just mind-numbing to try and figure out what you're going to say uh, and how you were going to say it and how you were going to suddenly you know, transition from a career and a life in sports to suddenly talking about such a serious issue and such a um, uh, dramatic event and, and, and uh, all of the feelings and thoughts that people had. And, and honestly, at the time, wondering, are we on the brink of World War III? Um, there's conversations about whether, you know, what is the U.S.'s reaction going to be? What's the retaliation going to be? Uh, how important will Canada play a role in all this? Is there going to be a draft if we go to war? Uh, you know, all this stuff. It, these were topics and these were discussions that were going on. And to suddenly switch from sports to that, not only for that day, Vince, that evening, we became a news station or, or just a, a, a event station and, a, and, and, and um, just a, uh, a cultural station or, or just a, a, an outlet for people to vent and to talk for at least two weeks if not three weeks like we started to get into some stories that had sports angles to them as it relates to when will we be back playing how amazing was that moment when the Mets and the Yankees got onto the field in the subway series in the midst of all this and and, and sort of rejuvenated a community just because they were able to play that game and to see the FDNY and the NYPD and, and all the first responders on the field and, and all that like you found sports angles but for a while, 
we weren't talking sports. We were just talking issues as it related to it. And that night, like that first night on September 11th, we had on um, the former head of the transit commission in, in uh, New York city, who was actually friends with the father of one of the producers at our station. So that in itself was incredible to hear about the, the just the, the infrastructure that would have existed and, and, and everything. But then I'll tell you the other thing was we spoke to a survivor that night, that night, like on the day of, and again, this guy was working in tower two. I don't honestly remember what floor I want to say it was in the high twenties or low thirties. He was in tower two and he, man, I'm trying to remember 20 years later, this, the, the details, cause I don't want to, I don't want to misrepresent here. He knew that tower one had gone down and he was in the staircase trying to get out of tower two. He got out of tower two and was okay. But the problem at the time was all of the cell phone lines, all communication within the city was jammed. Like nobody was able to make phone calls in, especially into the city. And if you got a signal, it was like rare, few and far between. So one of the producers at the station knew this guy again through his father said, I know person X, uh, see if you can contact him. We don't know if he got out, keep calling the number, keep calling the number. I had the home number and I had the cell number. So I, 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 and my producer and, and Bill Hayes, we kept calling, kept calling, kept calling, kept calling. And we finally got him on his cell phone. He picked up and he didn't know who the hell I was. And I explained the connection and how we got his number and, and spoke to him. And he was at like a coffee shop. He didn't know where he was going, where to go next, how to get home, whatever else. But he said, can you call my wife and tell her I'm okay? I can't get through to her. And I said, well, I've been trying. I can't get in either. But can he's like, please, please, please try. Da, da, da. So I called and kept calling and kept calling and kept calling. And ultimately the house phone rang and the wife, the woman picked up and thought, you know, just like immediately was shouting out her husband's name. And I said, no, it's, it's actually Eric Smith. I'm calling from a radio station in Toronto. And she's crying and completely, obviously, understandably, completely bewildered. And as I calmed her down and, and tried to explain the situation, I told her that I've spoken to your husband and he's alive. He survived and he wanted me to call you and he wanted me to that he's alive and that he's trying to find his way home. And she's clearly, you know, completely beside herself and starts bawling again and, and is, is, is just sort of sideways on the phone with me. Uh, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the fear and the pain and then suddenly the exuberance and, and uh, the relief of knowing that he was alive and then still trying to process who in the hell I actually am and why I'm calling. Um, uh, so that moment, and then to then, you know, reconnect with the man a couple of hours later and to do the live interview and to, to hear him recount his day and his story of, of getting out of the tower and living through it. Uh, that, that to me, right up until the championship for the Raptors was the number one moment. So as much as I've been able to to cover sports and, and talk to some of the greatest athletes and interview some of the greatest athletes and experience games and live games and, and whatever else. Uh, at the end of the day, even though I never wanted to get into news, that was the top moment uh, because it was just such a, such a, um, a life-changing experience to live through that day, to live through those shows. But then even as I say, just that moment specifically and those conversations specifically uh, with those people that, that kind of to this day still stands out more than anything else. Uh, I fought back tears, Eric, when you were telling me that story. Wow. Eric, how an honor this is for me to speak with you. I really appreciate it. Um, 
thank you for your time today and your insights. And I I can't believe how many topics that we covered. It was yeah. well, I kind of talk. Very cool. I kind of I kind of talk a lot. So yeah. <laughs> I didn't. I don't think either one of us thought we were going to do a. Uh, uh, almost an hour and a half. So. <laughs> so yeah, I actually gotta go. So I, 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 gotta, yeah. I gotta, I got a show that starts soon. But I appreciate it, oh, man, cool. and, and thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And as Paul Hendrick says, we hope we inform and entertain, and see you next time.